Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3, and happy Black History Month. We have arrived to a moment of celebration. Um, one thing that I, I've noticed that I've done is I don't typically create content specifically around days because I want to celebrate it year round. And I, I like to just really be intentional about the ways that I use my messaging and use my platform. You're going to see black folks every day, any day, wherever you come through social media to get to the podcast, you're going to see trans folks like that. That's something that I don't shy away from. And I think it should be more clear that way. I think what we do is we get caught up in in the moment where things are just oversaturated and then it goes away. So come March 1st, you won't see the happy Black History Month things, which which makes sense as far as the month. But if you're talking about really being intentional with diversity, equity and inclusion, you would actually integrate it and institutionalize it. But that's a conversation for another day. This week on Equity Matters, we are getting into the subject of policing black girls. And when I started thinking about this episode, I thought of it from a few different perspectives. And so when we talk about policing, we actually talk about the um, dangers and the threat of harm that come with actual police force. But I also thought about it in a way that we describe um, tone policing and saying or distracting one's intent with using privilege to dismiss, right? And you start to focus on the emotion behind the conversation and not actually what the things are that people are saying. There are many things that you will have to unpack in today's episode. I'm gonna lead in with that. Usually I, I wait until the end. But I want folks to really lean into the conversation taking place around policing black bodies, particularly black girls. Also, think about the ways that we have tone policed and said what's acceptable for people to communicate and why there is double standards when it comes to that. The imagery of Serena Williams comes to mind. But I also want to talk about the microaggressions, talk about the stereotypes, talk about the implicit bias that all surrounds this situation. And so without further ado, I would love to introduce you all to our guest for today's community of practice episode, the first one in a long time, Dr. Ijoma Opara and Marlene Francois Madden. Yes, thank you so much for having us here today. Um, so I'm Marlene Francois Madden, and thank you for the manifestation. I am currently a PhD student studying family sciences and human development at Montclair State University. And I am also a licensed clinical social worker. So I own a therapy group practice where we service predominantly black women and girls in New Jersey. And, oh, is that, is that it? Is that all? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, hello, everyone. I'll, again, thank you also for having us and also using you know, your platform to uplift our voices in these topics. We really appreciate it. So I'm Dr. Opara and I am an assistant professor in the School of Social, School of Public Health, excuse me, School of Public Health at um, Yale University. Um, my background is I got a PhD at um, Montclair State in the Department of Family Science and Human Development. I also got an MSW um, from NYU and an MPH from New York Medical College. I'm a licensed social worker 
um, worked as a youth and family therapist for a few years in New York City, specifically with um, young Black teen girls that were um, involved in the juvenile justice system in New York City. Um, and currently, I lead a lab called the Substance Abuse and Sexual Health Lab, and we focus on youth substance use prevention, HIV prevention, and also a second line of our work focuses on highlighting the strengths of Black girls in prevention. A quick shout out to the social workers in public health, because when I first joined public health, I'm like, why aren't there more people like me here? Like, right. like you all get the science, absolutely, but, you know, bringing things to a community context, I think that was often missing in the conversations I was involved in. Absolutely. And even, even from my work as a social worker, I got my, I got my social work degree after my MPH. But when I was um, completing my, my public health um, degree, I realized like I, there's this huge connection between health outcomes, um, especially amongst youth that, that, I, that I focus on, and mental health that's not really being addressed. And um, clinicians don't know how to talk about it um, because they're not trained in, um, in public health um, measures. Public health people don't really know how to talk about it. So I wanted, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get an MSW. And when I got my degree and started working with youth, I found myself incorporating the two, these two lenses in my work and stuff. And I think that's kind of what made me unique um, in a way. And you know, I, I think it helped me to better serve my, my clients too. So let's let's kick off the conversation for today, right? And so I'd love to kind of level set a bit around what does policing mean to you in this context? When I hear, yeah. <laughs> when I hear policing, <laughs> I hear restraint, I hear um, aggression, I hear um, violence, um, not just violence, but unfair criminalization for minor infractions. That's what comes up to me when I hear the word policing, um, especially when you're talking about black girls. Absolutely, and to, pick, and to piggyback off of everything Marlene said, I, I agree. Um, but then also to add, when I think about policing, especially in the context of black girls, I think about criminalizing normal youth behavior, right? So things that black girls are expected to do because they're girls and they're children, is often criminalized and demonized um, by society, um, and that's you know one of the that's how I think of um, policing this group. And so, do we do we even know why black girls are typically targeted in that way? Yeah, I mean, it go. Sorry, Marlene, do you want to do you want to oh, say? Go something? ahead. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, the the simple the the, the simple answer is racism, right? But also this intersection between racism and sexism, right? And this is, all, this is um, something, something that I talk about in my work um, and it's also coined as gendered racism. So it's very different from the type of racism that black boys experience, um, while it's also very different from the sexism that white girls experience. Um, and it's uniquely placed on black girls and it's fueled through stereotypes. So stereotypes within our society, within our media, that um, glorify and portray black girls as and black girls and women as like angry and just and aggressive and um, and also like over sexual and you know and not really being able to have an opinion or do things that normal people or normal human beings do without it being um, associated you know associated with some type of negative um, attribute and this is all due to stereotypes it even goes and it goes and it's been derived 
from slavery and how black girls and women were treated even as slaves in America and it's transcended um, up until you know what we see what we see today. Um, so that's like the simple little you know com you know complex you know answer, and it hasn't been addressed. You know we're just now hearing about terms like intersectionality. We're just now even being comfortable to talk about racism, right? And while I I think discussing racism and addressing racism is important, there's intersections that Black girls belong to that I think is not getting enough attention. Um, and we see that even when we think about like Black Lives Matter, how, you know, even with like when Black girls or, you know, go missing or when Black women go missing or get killed by the police, we don't really get enough um, attention, enough, you know, enough, um, enough national attention on these issues, even within our own people, right? So I think, you know, we even have to address that and figure out why aren't we getting the same attention and why aren't our, why doesn't it seem like our lives matter compared to other groups? Yeah, I completely agree. And um, I would also say adultification biases. And I know um, for as young as, as young as five years old, black girls are being adultified. So mm -hmm. that means that people are looking at them as they don't need as much protection. And what Dr. Ijeoma said was completely right as far as like, you know, black girls and women being viewed as being more aggressive or hypersexual. And that goes back to how they view them the Mammy, the Sapphire, the Jezebel. So they have these particular stereotypes that they place on black girls. And so they look at them as adult-like figures. And you will also hear in articles or there was a mayor that even identified a girl as a woman when she was a minor, or you'll see, see it when she a was, black girl- She was nine. She was yeah. something like that, right? Was that the one? There's something? Yeah. There was, was an article about, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but there, oh. but there, but there was an article about um, some a, a young nine-year-old girl that's what your story kind of reminded me of and the cop I think the girl was getting arrested or something yes in Buffalo, and then, New York. yes and then the cop was like stop acting like a kid and she was like I am a kid I'm nine like <laughs> like how am I supposed to act right now <laughs> but anyway go ahead I'm sorry yeah absolutely because even that story um, I talked about that story in class and I actually played that video in class because mm -hmm. I wanted people to see and understand how black girls are viewed so even um, and in that video, you would see that this was like, it was like a snowstorm and it was a crisis call. It wasn't even a call as if like, you know, this girl ran away where the cops need to be. There was a crisis call where, you know, perhaps the ambulance should have showed up, but the cops showed up and there were several police, at least, at least eight cop cars were there. And this is a nine-year-old and to, to have her tased, to have her, you know, drop down on the ground in the snow. And, and it was just like, it was very dehumanizing to see. And for, and this is how people view young black girls. You see it constantly when you watch multiple videos that happen. The young black girl in Florida that was um, um, dropped to the ground where she was unconscious. And now she experiences a lot of trauma when she goes back to school. So you're constantly hearing these stories over and over. It's not just with police officers, but it's also with like school resource officers that are in the school system too. Absolutely, and teachers as well too, yeah. um, you know, I think that's, you know, as much as I respect teachers and um, the work that they do as I don't, you know, I, it's teaching elementary, preschool, middle school, high school is, you know, is, is hard work. 
but a lot of the racism and the sexism that black girls face, I think a majority of it is is within the school context. And that's most likely because you've spent most of their time, you know, within school. So if we're going to talk about addressing racism and sexism, we need to really call out teachers. Um, in addition to police officers, school re resource officers, even with even within our community, really just calling people out and having people really be aware of how they're um, viewing, the, you know, children, you know, these young girls who are who are children. And we're gonna we're gonna come back to that shortly as we start digging into some of the institutions where this shows up most. But I, I do want to take it back just a bit on something that you mentioned, Dr. Oparo, around the stereotypes that help to shape this behavior and this mistreatment. Could you unpack some of those stereotypes? Yeah, so there's, um, so with my work, I focus um, on sexual health and substance use prevention. And um, because of that, there's a lot of um, stereotypes that goes into um, specific behaviors that may, that may lead to, um, to like STIs and HIV and so forth, but also behaviors that I feel are, are unfairly placed on black girls and women. Um, you know, like we, like when we talk about the Jezebel. So a girl or a woman who's just seen as overly sexual, um, you know, and just wants to have sex with everybody and anybody, um, you know, who, you know, whoever, you know, whoever they want to, you know, have sex with and so forth. These are stereotypes that are not really placed on men. You know, it's really is placed more on on women and um, and girls, you know, for, for say, and especially, you know, especially with um, black girls and women, per se, I mean, and um, those stereotypes are dangerous because what it, it could do one or two things. One, it could actually be um, penetrated into the minds of black girls where they feel like they have to engage in these behaviors in order to get attention. Um, I've seen this happen even when clients that I've worked with as a social worker, where girls felt like they had to have sex when they didn't even want to. They had to do these things because this was the only way that they were going to get a boyfriend or you know, this is, this is a cool thing to do. These were behaviors that were just placed on them and made them feel like they had to do this in order to in order to belong, and they were not ready and they were not comfortable, you know, doing you know doing these doing these things and stuff. So that's one. And then number two, what ends up happening is you may have a girl, a young girl who is liberated, who enjoys having sex, you know, for you know who wants to have sex and doesn't necessarily see it being something that she's forced to do. She just generally wants to do it. But what ends up happening is that because of these stereotypes, she's she's unfairly labeled as a thought or a hoe or you know what you know whatever it is and stuff and then that has a detrimental effect on her self esteem and her confidence just from being labeled these things where you don't see this often labeled you know you don't you don't see this happening with boys for example and in fact boys are usually are usually um they they're usually um celebrated when they have when they brag about having sex with multiple partners um you know and and stuff but the opposite is um, seen with black girls. And this is also, and I want to be clear, this is with, even within group context, right? So a lot of the, the black girls, black teen girls that I've worked with have experienced like a lot of within group discrimination from black boys within these, within these settings and stuff. And I'm not blaming black boys per se, but I'm just truly really showing how deep the discrimination, how deep the discrimination is that black girls are facing, but they don't even feel, they don't feel safe with, within their group. They don't feel safe, you know, outside of their group and so, and so forth. So these are things that I think are not being addressed. I need to be talked about um, more, more clearly. And then we also have other stereotypes like the mammy stereotype, where I think that's more, and I could be wrong, but I think that's more placed on women as opposed to girls. And that's the stereotype of just always being the helper and just always, you know, being this, you know, this, this, this nurturer, which is, you know, which is a beautiful thing, but then you end up, you know, um, not taking care of yourself. You end up being overly stressed and stuff and having to attend to the needs 
of you know of, of every of everyone else, which I think a lot of Black women are you know are facing, and that could really just be due to this this expectation that this is what we're supposed to do. We're here to serve, and that's it. We're not supposed to be pampered or taken care of. We're here to serve everybody else but ourselves. So that in itself is detrimental, and it's important to at least address those things with young girls because they will grow up to be women, and you don't want them to grow up to be women that neglect themselves um, and have to adhere to these stereotypes. Marlene, did you have anything you wanted to add there? No. <laughs> well, I think also too, because you also ask like as far as like historical context. So looking back at the controlling images um, that Dr. Patricia Hill Collins talked about in her work. So if you go back to that, you see it and you don't just see it as far as like what's happening now, but you see it in movies. So if you look at movies, they have a particular image that they have where you're either hypersexualized you're playing this mammy role where you're the mother that's taking care of people. And even that mother motherly role that they have in a lot of movies, they have a particular look, an image of how Black women are supposed to look physically, where, you know, maybe the mammy has her, her head wrapped, her head is wrapped, she's wearing, you know, I like to call it a muumu. <laughs> I don't know what's called an English. I actually like moo-moos, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> I love moo-moos. My yes. wife loves moo-moos too. Yeah, she it's got a moo-moo. You yeah. know, she in the kitchen, whipping up something. And you know how they say you got that strong arm. They know you know how to cook. So it's mm -hmm. like they have this particular look that you're supposed to have. And they constantly have Black women and girls play these roles. Even now, when you look at a lot of shows and movies. And I think because we have a lot more representation when it comes to having black women producers we're starting to see we're not seeing we're not seeing what we saw before so we're starting to see black women play a variety of roles where she's the you know she might be the boss and you know she owns a company or or showing you know black women living this luxury life or you know showing families um so you're starting to see a different picture now but for so long we have been viewed a certain way in the media and that also plays a role that also plays a role it's not just how um you know black girls are viewed within the school systems or around you know legal officers but also how we are viewed in the media and also within our community how they view us too absolutely it's funny you mentioned um media um because one of the I, I believe there's a statistic it's like like African American or Black children in the U.S. spend about sixty percent of their time watching um, TV, and this is and TV and media is where not just Black children, but really all children or most children rather get um, ideas of of who they are from television, right? So as a white girl, if all you're seeing are images of like a female vice president or, or president and you know a female CEO or a superhero like Wonder Woman and things like that you're gonna grow up and think like look I'm a badass you know like I'm gonna grow up and I can control you know do do anything I want but as a black girl how many you know what images are they growing up seeing you know on, on television are they seeing like themselves fighting each other are they seeing themselves as slaves seeing themselves as you know as Jezebel for you know for example or even being the mammy you know how can or are they even seeing themselves at all like I know for me growing up in the 90s there was barely any representation of black women at all on you know on television there wasn't the representation with even with an adult to be played with and stuff so you know so now I think in 2021 things are getting a little bit better but we need to um 
amp it up a little bit more, you know, and show that we live in a very diverse country. So with, you know, people from, you know, from different races have holding different backgrounds, different professions, we need to glorify that um, and have that be represented, you know, especially, you know, for our children to see. You said in the 90s, and for some reason, I actually like felt old for a second. I'm like, no, no I'm not that old, but I, re I remember the 90s. Like, it, that's when we grew up, and it's like, that's when we grew up, up honey. <laughs> I understand. Wow, is is are we at that age where like the nineties is like ancient? It's like the seventies. <laughs> I don't feel like it is though, but it was such a good era. I feel like we yeah. had like Moesha. I felt like you know being. Oh, I love Moesha. Girl, yeah, and sister, sister. That's yeah. true. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like as a black teen girl, growing was up. That, was that the nineties or the two thousands? That, that was the nineties. Well, the nineties is family matter. Family Matters was, family nice. was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Family yeah. Matters was good. And mm -hmm. I think having shows like that where we saw, we saw, you know, we saw Black families. That's we saw, true. We Even saw, with like Fresh Prince. I love Fresh Prince. Yeah. I still watch that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you get to see Black girls live. So they were going to school. They were enjoying their time. They were going out with friends. They were going to parties. So we got to see a little bit of that, but I don't think they highlighted the biases that Black girls experience mm -hmm. as much. Mm -hmm. I, was, I, I just remember the fresh the fresh prince of Bel Air episode not that family matters episode where um the son was pulled over by a police officer and the father had to address them that was my first time seeing that on tv oh, yeah. where they talked about racism but yeah. outside of that I feel like back then it wasn't highlighted as much it wasn't highlighted that's true that's so true I can't even think of an episode I mean it may be that I just can't remember I can't think of that being addressed in like fresh prince or Moesha or yeah, I can't even think of that. There might've been one on Fresh Prince. Cause I, I recall Uncle Phil having to come save the day once upon a time, but Moesha, no. And that would have been the, the right one, right? Like they were in high school, getting yeah. ready to go to college and just the things that they experienced and encountered. Yeah, it, it may have been that we just don't remember, but yeah. And you're right, I think Fresh Prince, I think, um, yeah, I think there was a, there was actually a bias, Vivian. You remember that episode when Vivian was dancing or something? Like, oh, yeah. she was in, like disease. I think, I think that was like a subtle racism type of thing, I guess, or something that, that occurred. But yeah, but yeah, but those were great shows. Yeah. Uh, the 90s. I loved all of them. Yeah. <laughs> so let, let's talk about schools. If, if that's where kids spend the majority of their time, I've got two kindergartners now who we, we just started school this year. And it's just like a whole new world for me because I'm like, I remember myself as a kindergartner, it was like, you know, it was like playtime more or less where you know, my mom got a break. So I actually got a chance to go be around other folks. But I never had any instances where I had to think about the things that I did. Like I could just be a child, right? And recently I went to go drop my son off at school and I see the resource officers and I'm like, I don't know what this is. I don't necessarily like it. Why is the police in my ch in my child's school? And like all these things start coming to mind. And so I, I want to hear from you all about some examples of how our black girls are being policed in schools or some of those Wait, other institutions. Back, back up. They have they have police in the kindergarten. Um, they're, they're at the elementary school, so I won't say they're in the kindergarten classroom, but wow. they're at the elementary school. See, I don't even know that that was happening. I, I know that police officers are heavily present in urban communities in the high schools. Yeah. I'm I like shocked to even hear this, that they're even oh, yeah. in elementary school. Like, I didn't see police like, officers until I got to high school. And we had metal detectors in my high school. And like, yeah, we had metal detectors in my high school. My, my parents yeah. were like pissed because they're like, you know, you go to one of the, the better schools, but you have a metal detector. I'm like, well, I, 
I secretly want it because people at my school were kind of- I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, for my high school, I went to Snyder in Jersey City and I remember them putting, it was, it was like one of the, like the toughest high schools in Jersey City. And I remember they put in the medical metal detectors because there was actually like a shootout, like the, maybe like a few weeks before. So I was, so I kind of was like, okay, I kind of get it. You know, <laughs> I kind of get why they did that. And we were actually right next door to a police station, which is the, the, the ironic thing. Um, so there was like a lot of police presence and stuff, whether it's justified, I don't necessarily think all that police presence was justified. I think that, and I think that we're seeing that a lot when, um, we talk more about when you see more about community policing and also communities kind of protecting each other. There is diff, there's different ways to calm teenagers and children down that don't have to involve the police. You know, once the police are involved, this escalates escalates to a much larger issue that could affect them for the rest of their lives and stuff. You know, a lot of these kids. You know, I talk about this a lot in um in my in the cl in classes that I teach that a lot of times you know girls, for example just want to be paid, they just want to be paid attention to, they want to be seen, you know, and when children are not seen, they often act out, or it may, you know, they, or they often do things to make sure that they're seen, and then that's the only way that you're seeing them, is when they do something like, you know, yelling, or throwing something around, or, you know, or something like that, they're almost like to keep doing that, you know, because that's the only time that you see them, and that you, you know, that you, that you, that they're actually being heard and stuff, um, so I think there's different interventions that could be that could address like violence or you know and, and so forth and within schools but to get back to your point about your children in kindergarten and you know and all this stuff one of the things i've known is know is that black children um are more likely to be um suspended and expelled from preschool than any other racial group which to me is insane because how do you what can you do to be expelled from preschool from, from, <laughs> from preschool i just like it doesn't make any but that's to also show you that a lot of the behaviors that we talk about are judged based on a specific um lens right so whatever your lens like if your lens is that this black child is dangerous you're going to anything that that child does you're going to see them as a threat, you know, no, ma no matter what, you know, you're going to see them as a threat unless you are aware that you are, that you, that you hold this bias and this lens, you're going to keep seeing them as a threat. And if we live, and we live in a system, unfortunately, that are terrified of Black children, you know, and it, it doesn't really, it doesn't make any sense. They're, you know, they're children and, and so forth. So um, I've even seen it happen, even in my own, even in my own work, where I've seen teachers say like a, like you know so just to give you a, a background i used to um be a sunday school teacher now, not that long ago maybe like five years ago i used to be a sunday sunday school teacher so i would actually um teach the three and four year old um kids um you know in, in sunday school and i remember noticing there was a younger there was a young black girl she was like four and she was bigger than everyone else she was tall so, so automatically that just made her seem like older, but she was actually just tall. And I get it because I was, a I was tall for my, um, for my age. And because of that, a lot of times too, in addition to your race and then your height, people often judge you differently. And I remember a young white girl and I was watching her, a young white girl just fell on the ground and just started crying. And then the teacher was like, are you okay? One of my, my co-teacher. And then she was like, oh, so-and-so pushed me. The, the young black girl. And then my co the co-teacher put the, 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 the black girl in the corner. And I said, well, wait a minute. I was watching her and she didn't even touch her. It, like, why would you assume that that girl was correct? And um, why, like, why, like, why didn't it even occur you to go and ask the girl 
did you push her? Like go and ask the young black girl, did you push her? Like it didn't even occur to her. And, and to be honest, the, my co-teacher was a black woman, you know, to an older black woman. So it was, so that was even more reason why I was like just surprised. And I just saw how this played out, how everybody was pacifying this younger white girl who fell on her own. She tripped, you know, on her own and, and just blamed everything on the black girl. So I ended up putting the white girl in the corner. I said, you're going to go in the corner for lying because <laughs> I, 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 I watched you and you were lying on a little black girl. So I'm going to put you in the corner. And then she started crying and then she apologized. And, and then she eventually admitted that the girl, did, she just didn't want to get in trouble for falling down and tripping. I mean, they're kids. This is what kids do. They just make up stuff, you know, or, or whatever. But it's a, it's, it's a bigger picture because for me, it showed that even within us, even within Black people, we have these biases that we don't realize that we're doing, but we have these biases even against our young children. So if our girls don't feel safe with us, who can they feel safe with? You know, that's, you know, that's just something that we have to think about and address. Definitely. When I think about with, with your question about the schools and how you said even with your son, there are school resource officers at a school. I've seen it even here in New Jersey in middle schools where there are armed officers in the school and I'm walking in a school like okay there's metal detector there's armed officers what's what's happening here am I missing something especially in the community where there has never been a mass shooting has happened I've never heard of anything other than fights so for me it's always very confusing to see that it's like they're setting up the schools to be a prison mm -hmm. to begin with so that they're, they're setting up that school to prison pipeline as young as five years old for a lot of kids in schools. And um, if you look at a lot of schools, it's about 80% predominantly white teachers. So let's think about an urban community where there are predominantly black girls. If they're being taught by 80% Caucasian teachers, and now you're talking about implicit biases, racism and adultification, what do you think is happening in those classrooms? Black girls are seven to eight more times to be suspended or have out of school suspension compared to white girls for the same exact behaviors. They're being coded for dress, for how they dress in school, how they wear their hair, um, things around cell phones. They feel like they're too aggressive in a classroom. And sometimes it's the teachers that's provoking the black girls because some teachers may not want to be challenged. So perhaps, perhaps she's bored in your class. Perhaps she's, she's bored so she's talking to someone else. Maybe she finished her materials. Maybe she has a question or maybe she's asking a question because the teacher said something and it wasn't accurate. And now the teacher feels challenged and then they're like, go to the principal's office. So, um, and then you notice in a lot of schools that people often believe the educator. So like if a black girl is sent to a principal's office, it's not okay, what really took place? It's automatically they're believing the educator and then now she has suspension, detention, and she may be kicked out of that school and sent to an alternative school. So it's like they're setting up this pipeline to happen for girls and not really addressing their emotional needs, their psychological needs in school, or their academic needs. Because if they're being pushed out of the school, what do you think is happening next? They're missing a whole week of school. They can't take their exams. They may get a packet sent home, or they may not get a packet sent home, depending on who the teacher is. So I think there, there are a lot of issues that's happening in schools. And I know um, school resource officers are in a lot of schools, especially New Jersey. Um, New Jersey, we have one of the largest white black disparity rates when it comes to juvenile detention centers. So about 97 out of 100 youth that are incarcerated will be black compared to three that will be white. So we have these large disparity rates. So then like, what do you think is going to happen 
when you have a school environment. You're going to have school resource officers. You're not going to have that many mental health providers in the schools to help them. So we have to really consider taking a restorative justice approach um, and a strength-based approach when working with Black girls. But it's not really happening, in my opinion. And so Marlene, you bring up like this, this notion of a trajectory, right? Like we, we see the, the dominoes fall after a, a child has been targeted in this way. And so I want to bring fast forward a bit into, you know, what do we see as our Black girls become women, right? And how does tone policing continue to show up in corporate settings? Microaggression, racial trauma, code switching at work, um, overworking and not getting promoted, being overproductive at work and feeling like you're still gonna be policed at work. So if you take a day off, there's a sense of guilt. If I take a day off, I'm gonna get fired. If I show up to work um, 10 minutes late, I'm gonna be fired. I can't take a day off to see the doctor's appointment. I can't wear this outfit. I can't do my hair this way. So really trying to show up in a way where you erase your blackness to show up in a corporate space. Um, so not showing up as your most authentic self, and that can really impact a Black woman's health or their mental health. Um, but you're constantly being policed everywhere you go. Absolutely. Um, and I could even add to that. I mean, just to add to everything she said, I, you know, I, agree, I agree with everything she said. But, you know, tone policing is a really serious issue that affects not only black girls, but black women. I mean, even me, myself, I was tone policed or, or they tried to tone police me, but you know, I let them, you know, I told them about themselves, but you know, but they, you know, but I've even been tone policed even via email. Like somehow my email is harsh. Like I didn't even like you speak to you and somehow you, you think that my two sentence email is harsh. So, but I'm, you know, and I'm privileged enough where I'm educated. I have, you know, um, you know, the credentials I understand the, I, I, could, I could recognize when racism is, is happening and sexism is happening. So I call people out and I let them know and I give them resources and references to say, you are being racist right now. Here are some resources I would like for you to read. When, you, when you're done reading them, you can get back to me and we can apologize to me after you've you know, digested my information. You know? But not everyone can do that, right? Because um, not everybody is in the position where if they do correct the aggressor, they could get fired. Or, you know, or they might not even have the tools to be able to know how to um, correct people and stuff. So I'm grateful that I'm in a, in a position where um, you know, I can do this, but not, not everybody can do this and, and, and so forth. So, and this does have a, a, serious, a serious effect on your, um, on your mental health, on who you are. Um, like you know, Marlene was saying, even like there are certain places that I, I may go to and I have to like kind of plan out and think, can I wear like, can I do, can I wear braids to this event? Like, you know, okay. And I would like have to plan it out and stuff just to make sure like, okay, I'm going to be in a certain setting. Let me change up my hair or, or, you know, or outfit or something or something like that. And to be honest, girls are going through this too. You know, I, um, I recently was a part of some focus groups with black girls um, that lived in a suburb, that lived in a suburban area. So I, what we, what we do know is that black girls, especially who live in these suburban predominantly white areas, most likely face, you know, the most type of overt type of racism, you know, um, because of because they're they're mostly the only ones in these in these school districts, or they're the only ones in, within their school. So they're kind of being forced to interact with people that already automatically view them, you know, as inferior. And I remember one of my um, I remember one in one of the focus groups, 
one of the girls mentioned how um, she was wearing these short shorts and you know it was you know it was a hot day everybody was wearing shorts but for some reason she was called out and she and she had to go to the principal's office and go home because her shorts were too short even though you know there were girls that were wearing the same you know the same outfits and so forth and the principal kind of told her like oh well you know you know you're you're shaped differently than everybody else so you can't wear i mean and they say these things like they're not even like hiding their racism like they like they say these things to to black girls not even like being aware that this is in fact a very you know racist thing to do because you are not correcting you know you're doing or saying the same thing to young to to young white girls so black girls learn from a very early age that everything they do is policed and watched. They 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 learn that. So they grow up with these kind of like survival. They have to grow up with these survival skills on how to navigate the world, um, knowing that they're going to be watched for everything they do, and knowing they're being treated and viewed differently. The thing that I want to highlight that that stands out right now is just like how deeply rooted and internalized it becomes. Because even when you tell the story about the Sunday school and wanting to rush to to comfort. The young white girl like you know white supremacy culture tells us the right to comfort and even here with the things that we say and you know it might even be passive right but just the fact that it's there it's like it's subconscious but it's still telling like i've taken the things that i've seen in media the stereotypes that i've absorbed over time and it helps to frame the way that i'm going to treat people and it, it can be so pervasive absolutely and i think the first step and recognizing that within the black community is just really just recognizing it, right? I think just really just being aware that we all have, we all live in a white supremacist society. So it's not uncommon that we are going to adapt some of those, those behave, you know, those behaviors or some of the thoughts in order to survive. It's not uncommon, it's not unreasonable because this is all we see, this is all we've been exposed to. But once you actively start unlearning it, um, once you actively are aware like, yes, okay, why is it that I judge this black girl differently than this, you know, this white girl? Or why is it that I believe that it's okay for me to judge a black woman for having sex with multiple partners and not okay for everybody, you know, for anybody else? Like just kind of being aware of these stereotypes and how we internalize it, I think is the first step to actually undoing it. Um, and then working and then being vocal and working towards um, being more fair and equitable. And you also bringing up church reminds me of a story that I'll, I'll remove this if my wife is comfortable with it. Um, when she was younger, she told me how she was told what she could wear to church, right? Because she didn't want certain deacons or someone to look at her the wrong way. And hearing it now, it's just like, it makes sense that we need to address it first, right? Like we need to acknowledge that it's a problem because why? Why should the young girl have to change what she's wearing around anyone as opposed to why is this old man looking at this young girl in this way? Right, right. Why aren't we telling the deacon to stop looking and over-sexualizing young girls, right? You know, like why, like, and it's, it's funny because this is also something that's coming out in a paper that I'm, um, that I'm publishing. It's talking about how sexual assaults um, is not really, um black girls are not given that same support when it when they report things like sexual assault and and i don't i want to be careful not to blame um black families 
because I understand where it's coming from. It's a, it's a, it's yes, it's it's unfair and it's internalized. I think sexism and racism that's happening and and a little bit of victim blaming. I am aware that it's also a protective mechanism, right? I think that our grandmothers and our mothers were just scared for our safety, knowing that if we were to get assaulted or raped, for example, by a deacon or uncle or whoever, you know, that's something that we're going to live with and everyone's going to blame us for it. That's just something that's just going to happen. And I think that within black families, they're trying to do their best to say, you know what, I can't control the deacon, but I can control you. And that gives the sense of fault because at the end of the day, you, you could wear, you could be fully clothed and still get raped. I mean, that's not, you know, clothing and what you do this will not protect you from being around somebody who wants to rape you and is determined to rape you or assault you or molest you and, and so forth, right? But I think it's this false sense of control of thinking that, okay, if I can do whatever I can in my power to attempt to control you in what you wear and what you do, maybe, you know, that's going to be enough to protect you from being exposed to this person who I have no control over, right? I'm not saying it's right, it's not fair, right? But I think that's just a product of, you know, just being, just surviving really in this world while black, knowing that people aren't gonna believe you, people aren't gonna trust, there's not gonna be any support and, and, and so forth. I, I think that a little bit, that's a little bit of where that's coming from. Yeah, I would also say like, there's a lot of, uh, when you look at a lot of churches, um, there's still a lot of this misogynistic that's happening in church, a lot of the patriarchal views. So if you notice a lot of churches, um, they'll even say, you know, women can't preach on the pulpit. You yeah. know, women don't have that much authority as a man. She has to submit under whoever is in leadership. So you do have a lot of older women that, you know, they look at young black girls and they make statements like, oh, you too fast. You think you, you think you grown? So when they say those statements, they don't realize how it impacts the lives of black girls. Um, I don't, and I don't know how much parents realize this. And this is something I always go over with parents, how their perception of their black girl matters a lot. It matters as far as their self-esteem, how they see themselves, especially when this world does not view them a certain way, it starts in the home too. So um, when you have church leaders and community leaders, they have to make sure, like, how are they talking to young Black girls? They have to make sure that they're affirming and that they're creating safety, because if they're not doing that, then she's going to assume that no one values me, you know, when other people are saying, oh, you too fast, you think you're so grown, like, and, and just give it an attitude. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to, to, piggy, to piggyback off of that within the patriarchy of church um, and how a lot of instances um, often where, you know, we're blaming black girls and women and so forth. I think the first step to undoing that too is for parents to be open to just to listening to their girls, believing their girls too. If your daughter says, look, the, I don't feel comfortable around this uncle, believe them. I don't care if that uncle's your brother, believe them, right? Because, because most of the time, sexual assault typically happens with somebody that you know you know that's just a, that's just a fact it's hard to believe it um like i would never want to believe that a family member would would assault or make my daughter when i have a daughter uncomfortable but at the end of the day we have to believe you know our girls when they're telling when they're telling us this and when we don't believe them 
if we don't believe them as like the adults in their lives as family members, no, they're, that all of a sudden is going to have a, a detrimental effect with their, on their self-esteem, their, their self-worth, and they're going to be keeping these secrets, hiding it, not feeling like, you know, I'm not even worth being protected. You know, I'm not, no one's gonna listen to me anyway. And going through life, trying to, you know, trying to, to deal with the trauma that they may have faced as a child. I mean, there's so many, and, I, and Marlene, you, you probably could um, attest to this, just as a therapist, I think almost all of the girls that I, that I worked with had some type of sexual assault happen to them with the family member, or at least when the family knew, almost all of them. And, that they, and they never felt comfortable bringing it up to their parents. And again, I don't want to blame parents I want to move away from blaming black families, but I do want black, I do want us as within our community to really just think about that. Just think about the fact that, you know, there are girls, there are a lot of girls out there. And I even know women who are mothers who could also say too, that they were molested or assaulted or so forth as a child and didn't even feel comfortable telling their own parents. So I think we have to just really be aware of that and think about what, you know, how is this going to, how is this going to affect girls moving forward and to really start learning how to believe young girls and also to really be open and comfortable calling out people um, about sexual assault and molestation, right? Why do we have to constantly focus so much on teaching girls on how to speak, you know, how to speak, speak up and how to um, cope with this when we need to be telling people don't assault children. So, like, stop. Like, why, like, why are you doing that? Like, what's wrong with you? You need, you need help. Like, why, like, why are you assaulting and raping and, you know, doing these things, you know, doing these things to children and teaching them the proper way to, you know, to work with um, children, family members and so forth. So. Yeah. And, and I think the hard part about it is the fact that 90%, I want to say at least 90% of um, those that are perpetrators has access to the child. Mm. So they're a relative or someone that has access. So relative, neighbor, whatever it is. So it's not a complete stranger. So they know them. Right. So at some mm -hmm. point there may be some coercion that's happening. They're being coerced. So then there's this conflicting view where like you have a young black girl who's like, but this is my uncle or this is my pastor. Or, this was my favorite coach. How could this happen? And then now they're, you know, there's a lot of gaslighting that takes place there. You know, they may say like, oh, well, you're not going to get candy anymore. You're not going to get any presents from me. If you tell your parents, you're going to, you're going, they're going to send you to foster care. And as a young child, you may not know what foster care look like just based off what you see on TV. So then you don't want to say something. Or you have the young girls where we don't talk enough about mother-daughter wounds where the mothers don't believe their child. They don't believe them. And they're saying, well, it's because you're too fast. It's because you're being promiscuous. It's because of you doing this. Mm -hmm. um, so, so then there's this lack of, of trust that happens. And so it's really hard for Black girls to speak up about it, um, especially now when you look at the media. It takes a while for someone to go on trial and just to be guilty. Look at R. Kelly. Look at Bill Cosby. How long did it take for black that to girls be are just were just not believed, and they see this and they Absolutely. know this. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the cost it takes for legal matters or how they're provoked in court, and and then it makes them second guess and having them to relive that trauma over and over and over. So they don't have that much support. So it just makes it difficult for them to speak up about it if they know that it's gonna. It's not even though they report it, it's there's no legal action that's gonna happen. Absolutely. I can't, I can't tell you how frustrated I was with not only the R. Kelly trial, but even thinking about T.I. and Tiny and their like sexual, um, sexual assault allegations that was happening. There were so many people, Black people, that I was like surprised to see how much they were blaming these young girls. 
Yeah. Um, there are there are women now, but they were a lot of them were teens at the time. And saying, well, they shouldn't have been in the house, you know, no one able to go do drugs, or they shouldn't have been doing this, they shouldn't have been doing that. And so and I and I rarely hear this when we talk about white women. I rarely hear that, you know, from you know, I like maybe from men, maybe, but I rarely hear people talk about um white women in that way and stuff. Um, so I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, I'm sure it does, because I think this is something that we have in common when it comes to sexism and and victim blaming and so forth, but I feel like it's so much more profound when black women speak up um, about sexual assault, especially if it's with someone that we idolize like a celebrity or, you know, things like that. So our girls are seeing this, they're not stupid. They see this, you know, and they're internalizing that and seeing, wow, you know, if they can't even, you know, if nobody's, if everyone's blaming them and attacking them, then who am I? It probably was my fault that I got assaulted. You know, maybe I shouldn't have wore those booty shorts, you know, outside, or I should have, you know, um, covered up when my mom or my dad told me to or something, or maybe I shouldn't have been so friendly or, or all, all the what if, all, all, all these things and stuff. So, you know, and imagine what that has to, what that does to your, to your mental health and how you view yourself. So I think, you know, that, and I know we're kind of, um, We've moved away from policing black girls, but you know, but I think, but I think, but I think it's important to discuss. You know, I, I think it's something that we don't talk enough about as well, too. Um, and it's something that affects most black girls um, in the U.S., I believe, and, and even internationally. So one of my my desires, right, is to always become or always be a better advocate or a better ally, right? I don't necessarily. I mean, I've got a goddaughter. I've got nieces. I've got younger cousins. There's there's black girls around me. And this goes out to, to the listeners as well. But what advice do you have for those who want to be that better advocate to disrupt policing of black girls? Definitely speak up. If you see something, say something. Um, so, you know, we see a lot that happens in the media. And oftentimes I find that when whenever these tragic stories show up, in the media, it's usually black women that's advocating, that's fighting for it. I would love to see more men on the front line of black women's issues, black girls' issues, where they're advocating for it, they're donating to causes to help that's gonna advance opportunities for black girls. I would love to see more of that on the front line. I don't think that's something I'm seeing a lot. I see a lot of men say, oh, they wanna protect black women, they wanna protect black girls. But sometimes I wonder, does that go goes beyond their mother, their daughter, their sisters, their cousin? Do they protect all Black women and girls that they come across? So like if they see something that happens in the media, amplify that story. You know, find out how you can support that young girl in your community. Um, is there a way where you can support a mentoring program that can provide more mentors for young Black girls? So I think it's all about advocating you know, advocating, amplifying their voices, but also like donating dollars to organizations. Absolutely, I, I, everything Marlene said and more. Um, I also think really like just simply loving black girls, right? Just looking at black girls and just loving on them. Um, just, you know, telling, you know, telling them that they're beautiful, that they're intelligent, that they could achieve great things. Um, being aware of these stereotypes and, you know, and seeing them as the children that they are. Thinking about, Looking at that girl and thinking about if this was a white girl, would I say this to her? Would I view this to her if this is a white girl? I think that's actually the best type of exercise that people 
people can because that people can do to start learning whether they are really being like intentionally biased against black girls and stuff just thinking about if this was someone else how would you treat or view this person um you know without knowing their background or anything and so forth so i think those are really important um steps you know and amplifying the voices of black girls and women um, and so forth, because end of the day, like Marlene said, there are a lot of black women activists who are doing the work already, but we need more. We can't do everything. We can't, we can't hold the, have the world on our backs. We can't do everything. We need help from our white allies, our Hispanic allies, Asian allies, black men, you know, we need help from everybody. Um, when a black girl is affected, everyone's affected. So we need to really, um, you know, really look at black girls as our own. Um, and really think about, you know, supporting them in ways that we would support other groups. I'm grateful for the conversation and I'm glad that we're lending, we're ending with the, the call to action, right? Like there are things that we can do, tangible steps that all of us could take in order to support our black girls. What I would like to do now is to shift a little bit and talk about how we can support you all. So how do we keep up with the work that you're doing, keep up with you? If there's social media or any services that you offer, how do we amplify that here? Yeah, so um, I can be found on most of my social media platforms, Marlene Francois. So that's my Instagram, my Twitter, my website, MarleneFrancois.com. I also have a book, The State of Black Girls, a go-to guide for creating safe spaces for Black girls. And there's actually a whole chapter on there titled Policing Black Girls. Um, so I think it would be a great read for those that are interested in learning more how to work with Black girls, to know about their lived experiences. Um, and even it has like go-to guides and tips and advice that at the end of most of the chapters. So um, the book is available on Amazon and it's also on my website. And it's an awesome book. So everybody buy it, whoever's listening. Yeah. <laughs> it's an awesome. It's, it's, it's one of a kind. One of the, I think first, one of the few books that is actually geared towards Black girls and it's readable for them and provides actionable steps um, for Black girls to be aware of their mental health, their, you know, the well, the issues that are facing them. It's beautiful. So thank you for that, Marlene, for gifting Black thank girls um, that, you know, that gift. Um, for me, you can find me on Twitter um, at Ijoma Opara PhD. Um, you could also find me on my website. Um, ijomaopara.com. I offer um, consulting services specifically on teaching um, companies and um, agencies who work with um, Black children. Um, specifically, I talk, I talk, I provide um, workshops on highlighting strengths of Black girls and prevention, specifically around substance use, HIV, and even, and also mental health as well. Too, um, I pro I provide workshops related to being um, a Black girl activist, so how to get into activism and um, youth leadership roles as Black girls to make a change in their community. Um, so, if you know if anyone's interested, they could you know reach out to me um, through there. I just want to say thank you all. Aside from the, the episode, but just for the work that you're doing and the spaces that you're taking up, you know, take up more space. Like it's it's so necessary. Marlene, I'm going to order my book uh, when we get off the phone. Uh, Thank you. I, I just see, like, for my own learning, right? Like, yeah. Now, this was great. I, I definitely appreciate you all, and we'll definitely be in touch. Yes. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Thank you. I don't know how many other podcasters listen to this podcast. But have you ever walked away from an episode and you're just like, wow, right? Like you're you're literally just 
thinking about the content, you're thinking about the the things that people should take away from the episode. You think about the guests and you're just like, wow, this this was this episode was one of those perfect combinations when you have community of practice episodes or guests multiple guests it it's a hit and miss and i've been grateful that all of my community practice episodes hit right like there's there's just no no denying it and i I really like being able to bring all of those different perspectives together and have a conversation about how we advance the field or how we how we change the ways that we behave and dr opara and marlene just really really brought it and so thank you to them I've got a few announcements that I want to share, as always. Um, First things first, we have officially signed the dotted line with the Cummings Graduate Institute. I'm expecting our first two trainings to actually be available at the end of this month. So digging into community engagement, something that you know I am very, very passionate about anyway. And also implicit bias, which happens to be my background as far as research. So those two trainings will be available, um, I believe, February 28th. We will confirm, though. So we've got another episode between now and then. Be on the lookout. I'll be sure to put the links in our bio um, so you can find them on Linktree if you're following us on social media. If you're not, you probably want to do that. So that's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram and at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. The other update that I want to share is your boy has been writing a lot. And so I am anticipating my first publication that's not self-published. So, you know, shout out to Medium, but I'm, I'm stepping out. I'm expecting that to happen sometime in March. I'll have more details next month. And also working on another project around community engagement that you'll probably see sometime in the summer, maybe in the fall really exciting things folks equity matters has really been a a blessing for me just really being able to expose um, the gifts that I've I've hidden for far too long and so shifting back really quickly and thinking about the episode I often reflect on just experiences that I've had where I'm like I should have did something different or I should have um, acted when I didn't and In thinking about this episode, I recall a time where I was preparing for a meeting. It was the meeting before a meeting. And my supervisor at the time, black woman, um, went with me to a colleague's office and we were preparing for some public health debrief. And I just recall the, the white man would not focus on the subject, but he focused on her hair. And he was fixated on it and said, I, I don't know how you do this or how how long does it take for you to prepare in the morning? And and I'm just sitting there and she's obviously you know aware. Um, I've had the benefit of, of learning from some of the greatest public health minds, let me tell you. And she she just eloquently said, you know, that that's not the point of this meeting is my hair routine. And I'm it's like, ooh, you know, she read them. But it was like, why didn't I say something? And that's what I want for us to start considering as you know practitioners as advocates as allies that's the word that i'm I'm really digging at how do we step in when the person is not ready to have that conversation how do we support the person and also eliminate the behavior because both things need to happen 
random tangent i know that happens with me from time to time another thing i'd like to share is that before equity matters podcast picked up my wife and i had a podcast and we still do and that's part of the reason why i'm mentioning it here the real bell podcast is a place where you can get to know me outside of the the academic or the more educational setting and i think it's important that you you see that you get glimpses of like my humor here but you get to see more a well-rounded version of me and part of the reason why I'm, i'm endorsing it here is also the conversation that we had on the february episode that we released earlier um this month we talked about miscarriage and we talked about grief and we talked about loss and the ways that stigma shape that experience. And so I'm driving you over there. Go give it a listen. You can come back to Equity Matters if it's not your jam. That's not that's not a problem. But I want you to at least listen to it and consider the ways that our environment has shaped the way that we respond to grief. Before we go, I want to just thank the guest again. I want to thank you all, the listeners. It feels like a countdown in many ways that we're, we're cranking out episodes, but I know that there's a, an, an end date in mind. Folks are asking me, what am I going to do after the podcast? And I, I don't fully know. I've joked about creating a comic strip. I've thought about doing something animated I want to do something video related at some point. You know, I want to get over some of my my introverted ways um, and, and put myself out there a bit more. But I've got ideas. And if you have ideas, reach out to us. Let us know because I'm I'm open. I'm always down for a collaboration, too. So if you're down with that, let's make it happen. So until next time, folks, you know where to find us. Equity Matters.